I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. We will continue to see our Lord undertake another healing as he heals a man who is paralyzed this evening. Last week we saw him heal a, a man who had scale disease. And we considered how that picture was really a living illustration of our spiritual lives. Well, this evening we're going to see a, a similar dynamic going on as Jesus heals this paralyzed man. Uh, so Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy word. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. An amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Well, the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, our biggest problem, our biggest problem as fallen human beings is the guilt of our sin. That's our biggest problem. And this guilt, this, this sin is universal. As we saw last week, our diseased hearts infect every single descendant of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In fact, there was a, a philosopher in the 19th century who, who noted that with the, the rise of the modern age, God has been effectively declared to be dead with the rise of atheism into society and culture. But his main point was to indict the modern West for not fully living up to the implications of this belief. If God is dead and you believe that, 
then you have to rework, rethink how you view everything in life, from science to morality to logic to everything changes. You can't just go on and living like you used to be living if you've effectively declared God to be dead. If we consider that, that, that line of thought, if God is dead, if there isn't a God, then the whole concept of sin, the whole concept of guilt, also erodes. Sin and guilt presuppose the idea of, of a God. But one thing that you see throughout time, culture, and society is that guilt pervades. It pervades on the individual level, our own hearts, our own consciences. But guilt also pervades throughout societies, especially as technology increases that brings to light new questions that have never been asked before. It brings about moral responsibility and thus guilt ensues. You think of many of the green initiatives. People feel a level of guilt for how we have stewarded, have treated this creation. You think of the fascination with victimhood. If one can claim to be a victim or identify with a victim, they're able to transfer moral responsibility and thus moral guilt. There's this, as one author has noted, strange persistence of guilt that pervades time, that testifies to the fact that this is indeed our greatest problem, the guilt of sin. And theologically, we know this is true because there is a God who has created this universe with a certain moral order. As Paul says, there's this law of God that's been written upon our hearts that testifies to us the sense of morality. So we are a guilt-ridden people. We are a guilt-ridden people. And Jesus is the only one who can offer a lasting and decisive solution to this problem man's greatest problem. And Jesus' solution comes in these words that we see here in our text. Man, your sins are forgiven. This absolution, this declaration of forgiveness that Jesus alone can speak and ultimately achieve. That's what this text is teaching us. And of course, as we just got done reading it, uh, you can see that this text is about Jesus healing a man who's paralyzed. However, there's something much deeper going on here. We see that this man's greatest problem was not his physical paralysis. This man's greatest problem was within. He had the paralyzing effect of the guilt of sin upon his heart, upon his conscience. And forgiveness from this sin was found only in Christ alone. So this evening, I want us to focus on this, this central idea that Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. That's the main point, the main idea I want you to focus your hearts and minds on. Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. We're going to consider this idea in three main points. We'll first consider how Jesus' uh, authority to forgive sins declared Jesus' authority to forgive sins challenged, and then Jesus' authority to forgive sins proven. So it's declared, it's challenged, and then it's proven. First, let us consider how Jesus declares that he has the authority to forgive 
sins. This passage begins uh, with this, this setting of Jesus' teaching. So far in the Gospel of Luke, this has been, this has been a theme. We've seen as Jesus begun, has begun his, his earthly ministry, he has started to teach. And he teaches with a level of authority that the people have never seen in their own scribes and, and teachers of the law. And he's gr- created a, a, a reputation, a following. People are eager to hear what has to come out of, of this man who's from this lowly town of Nazareth. So Jesus is teaching in a home or a structure, and we are told that Pharisees and teachers of the law have, have gathered from various regions to hear this man who has seemingly come out of nowhere and gained quite a reputation, a man who's had no formal training, is teaching with a level of authority that the Bible scholars of the day did not have. We also come across these men, these men who had a friend who was paralyzed. And these men heard that Jesus was in town, and they thought, this is their opportunity. This is the one man who can actually do something to heal and change the life of our paralyzed friend. So they get a stretcher of sorts, and they carry their friend to where Jesus is said to be teaching, and they quickly find out that they have a problem. They were not the only ones who wanted to be in the presence of Christ. He has a huge crowd that's surrounding him. They realize there's no way they're going to make it through this huge crowd carrying this stretcher with their paraly- this paralyzed man. But then they, they look at this building and they get an idea. Because in that day and age, buildings would have, have steps up to the roof and uh, the ceiling would be these... Uh, tiles of of mud or clay, and they recognize that they're able to get to those steps. And so they go around the crowd and they bring their friend who's paralyzed up on these steps to the ceiling of this home, and they take out some of the, the tiles and they lower their friend down to where Jesus is teaching. Now these men went to great lengths just to be in the presence of Christ. And and Jesus recognizes, we see that Jesus recognizes the faith of these men. These men recognize that this was no ordinary man. This man possessed the power of God to heal and could actually do something for their friend. But notice what Jesus does. He doesn't do what we probably expect him to do. I would imagine as we're reading this narrative, Our expectation would be for Jesus to recognize the great faith of these men and and what they went through to get in the presence of Jesus so that he could heal their friend. We would expect Jesus to say, rise, take up your your bed and walk. But notice that that's not Jesus' initial response. Rather, Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And this this address of, of man... As it comes across in English, it it sounds a bit derogatory. I think that's how, if you address someone as man, it's it's, uh, probably not the best way to go. But in the original context and language, this is the equivalent of saying, friend, friend, your sins are forgiven. What we learn from this address, what we learn from this very first response of our Lord to this man who is 
paralyzed is that his greatest problem is not physical in nature. His greatest problem is not the fact that he can't move his limbs, he can't walk. His greatest problem is in the fact that he has a sin problem, the guilt of sin, that he's transgressed God's holy law, the moral order, and thus he has a, a huge debt to his name, and he can't satisfy for his own sins. Thus Jesus here is addressing first and foremost this man's greatest problem. This man needs his sins to be forgiven. Well, do you know that this word that Jesus speaks is the same word that he continues to speak to us today? You may have recognized by this point that each week in our order of worship, our liturgy, we have a time where we hear these very words spoken to us from God's word. These words that for those of us who come in faith, our sins are forgiven us because of Christ. Now, if, you, if this isn't familiar to you, if this is something that you maybe haven't, haven't seen done before in other churches, it may seem a bit foreign or unfamiliar to you, and, and you may have objections to it, similar to the objection that the scribes and the Pharisees raise. Who are you to forgive sins? God alone has the power to forgive. But it's important to know that I'm not forgiving sins. As a Protestant Reformed church, we don't believe that ministers have been given any sort of supernatural power to forgive sins. Rather, I'm ministering this very same word that Christ spoke to this man who was paralyzed to you today. Just as I minister the law of God to you, I minister the gospel. And you'll notice that when I announce that declaration of pardon, it's always in the name of Jesus Christ on the authority of God's word. It's God's word declaring this good news to you. You may still wonder, well, why do we need to hear this every week? I know the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I, I know that Jesus is, is my Savior. Why, why do we need to go through this pattern of reading the law, confessing our sins, and hearing this, this absolution in Christ's name? Why do we need to do that every single week? Is this just a ritualistic pattern and practice left over from a bygone era? Why do we do this? Well, our habits in life, our virtues and our vices, are very much tied to who we think we are. For instance, if you are trying to develop the habit of exercise, and you repeatedly think of yourself as someone who hates exercise, someone who's out of shape, and someone who loathes when one's heart rate gets above 100 beats per minute, you're probably not going to begin this habit of exercise. But if you tell yourself that you know, I'm someone who values and prioritizes exercise as a legitimate good for me in my life, you're at least on the path, on the road of beginning this habit. There's a certain, a certain analogy to the Christian life with that. Much of our, our progress or lack of progress in our own sanctification lies with a understanding, a proper understanding or misunderstanding of, of who we are. Our identity is very closely tied to our progress in the Christian life. 
How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as someone who is fundamentally in bondage and captivity to sin, so much so that whatever you try, you will not break that pattern, that cycle of, of sin and vice? As stained in sin? Or do you think of yourself as someone who's been forgiven, who's been washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ? In 2 Peter 1, uh, Peter says one reason why we don't progress in, in virtue and and sanctification is for this very reality, that we have forgotten that we've been cleansed from our former sins. And Paul argues this way repeatedly throughout his epistles. Uh, one, one more example of this is in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul lists all of these sins that Christians in the Corinthian church were struggling with and were most likely continuing to struggle with But then he goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, even though you may still struggle with these sins, you are not to identify with these sins. This is not who you are fundamentally. You are those who've been justified and forgiven in Christ. This idea of our identity being fundamental to our our Christian lives very much fits with the analogy of us as pilgrims. The New Testament describes Christians as pilgrims in this present evil age. If you think about a pilgrim, what is one of their greatest temptations? Well, it's to assimilate to the culture and the people and the country in which they are passing through. It's to forget that their greatest citizenship lies in their homeland, in the country in which they're not residing. Well, brothers and sisters, that's our temptation as well. Our temptation is to forget who we are, to forget that our greatest citizenship lies in the age to come. It lies in heaven. So if we want to make progress in the Christian life, we need to begin with who we are, that we are those who've been cleansed, forgiven, absolved for Christ's sake. And, with, and as such, we are called to a new way of life. It's only when that's at the, f- the center of who we think we are that we'll be able to live a life of gratitude. And so each week, coming back to that initial question, why do we need to hear this each and every week? Well, each week, as this absolution is declared upon you, it's a reminder, it's a reorientation of who you are as a pilgrim people. As you go out into your life, into this present evil age, Each Sunday, you're reminded of who you truly are, that you are those who've been forgiven, absolved, cleansed for the sake of Christ. It's out of this identity that we seek to love our Lord and our neighbors as Christ has loved us. So we see here that Jesus' authority to forgive sins was was not just declared to one man in, in the first century, but it's declared to us each and every time we gather for corporate worship, each and every time we open God's word. Jesus' authority to forgive sins is declared. We also see that Jesus' authority to forgive sins is challenged. It's challenged. So after Jesus gets done declaring the forgiveness of sins to this paralyzed man, we see that the scribes and and Pharisees are, are quick to object. If you look with me in your Bibles at verse 21, We read, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? 
Who can forgive God? Who, forget, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, I would imagine that these Pharisees were waiting for Jesus to say something that they, can ha- that they could have against him, waiting for him to say something outrageous that they can take him to task about. And Jesus gave them something. Jesus has just declared that he has the power to forgive sins. This would have been an outrageous idea in that context. Outrageous. Now, the Pharisees' objection isn't completely wrong. Notice that they say, God alone has the power to forgive sins. They're completely right on that score. God alone has the power to forgive sinful individuals of their sin. And they would be completely correct if Jesus was a mere man. But what we see is that their error is in failing to recognize the true identity of Christ. Christ is not a mere man. This is the Son of God, who, yes, has a human nature, but is likewise true God. And therefore, he has every right to, every authority to forgive sins. And we'll see that beginning here, this theme of of this opposition between Christ and the religious leaders of his day. This this theme will continue throughout throughout the gospel. So these scribes and these Pharisees, they're challenging these words of Jesus to, to forgive, to forgive sins. I'd like to spend a few moments now reflecting upon how Jesus' authority to forgive sins is challenged in our own life, in our own experience. I think we all at times can hang on to the guilt of past sins, particular sins of our past that have a way of of haunting us, a way of continuing to come against us and, and accuse us, leaving us in a state of paralysis, as it were, at least experientially. It may be easy for us to confess and, and kind of hand over to Christ our respectable sins. There may be one or two or a few sins that we just can't, we just can't do that. We, we feel as if we have to hold on to them as a sort of penance, as a sort of atonement to get rid of these, these sins. And sometimes... Most times, it's not so much that we stand opposed to Jesus' authority, but it's, it's as if our sin becomes personified. It's our sin, the, the, the guilt of these past sins, that begin to testify against Jesus' authority, begin to testify against us in our own conscience. How can you actually believe that Jesus would cleanse you after what you have done? There's no way you're getting off the hook on that one. Brothers and sisters, the good news of this text is that Jesus has authority not just over your respectable sins, not just over some of your sin, but if you've come to him by faith, he has authority to forgive you of every single one of your sins. And not just your past sins, but even your future sins. That's what we confess this, good, this Friday as we, as we commemorate Good Friday, Jesus' passion on the cross. The Christian doctrine of the atonement is that Jesus made a full satisfaction for his people's sins. 
meaning he fully paid the price, satisfied the wrath of God for every single sin his people have ever committed or ever will commit. That is good news. So do you believe that? Are you still holding on to particular, uh, particular sin or particular sins? Hand that over to Christ. He has fully satisfied, paid the price for that sin. And he wants you to experience the full forgiveness that he has already won for you. So we not only see Jesus' authority to forgive sin, uh, sins challenged, challenged uh, by the scribes and Pharisees of, of his own day, but also challenged by our own personified sin as it testifies against our own conscience, against Jesus' authority. But lastly, we see Jesus' authority to forgive sins proven. Proven. As we continue in this narrative, notice how Jesus responds. He describes into these Pharisees have challenged him. Who are you to say this outright, outrageous thing? To say that you have the authority to do what only God can do? Look with me at verses 22 and 23. You see, and when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now, the logic of Jesus' question here is really from the perspective of a bystander. If you're a bystander and someone says, your sins are forgiven, you you can't verify that. It's a claim about something that happens in the invisible realm. You cannot verify that. Theoretically, anybody could make that claim. But if someone heals a man who was paralyzed and unable to walk, and that man gets up and walks, that's immediately verifiable to anyone who is in uh, Jesus' presence. So essentially what Jesus is saying is, okay, I recognize you think that anyone can make this claim and, and we can't verify it. Well, I'm going to... Heal this man so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And that's what Jesus does. He says, just as I have the power of God to physically heal this man, I want you to know that I have the power of God to heal, or the power of God to forgive sins. This healing of the paralyzed man serves as a sign to prove that he has authority to deal with this man's greatest problem, that is, the guilt of his sin. He gives a tangible sign to prove to them his power over the intangible, the invisible, the spiritual. One theme that we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus' healings teach us about his mission. As we saw last week, as we see this week, Jesus' mission was not just to come and bring some provisional social good. All of these people that he healed were going to get sick, get another disease, and eventually die of something. This is merely a temporary healing. So these healings are meant to teach us something, illuminate something, point to something greater that he has come to do. In these last couple of weeks, we've seen that it's illuminating to us 
that he's come to give us spiritual healing, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse our hearts as we saw last week. But it's also pointing to his second coming. Because in Jesus' second coming, Jesus will come and bring lasting physical renewal as we all attain the resurrection of the body. Jesus is, is inaugurating his kingdom in his early, earthly ministry. Well, we may read this and think, boy, I wish Jesus would prove to me in tangible, physical ways that he has the authority to actually forgive my sins. Why can't he just show up and, and heal a man and prove to me that my sins have actually been cleansed? Brothers and sisters, the amazing thing is, is that he has given us these physical, tangible signs to prove to us that our sins are forgiven. Now, of course, it's not in the same manner or way in which, uh, which we see in our text. He's not coming and, and miraculously healing people of physical ailments and diseases. But he's given us the bread and the wine at the Lord's table. Think for a moment the purpose of communion. It's to prove to us in a tangible way, a way in which we can experience with all of our senses, not just with our ears. We can touch, we can taste, we can see, we can smell bread and wine for the purpose of knowing that Jesus has actually washed us and forgiven our sins. A visible sign for an invisible reality. That's what the Lord's Supper is. So that when you come with faith to the table of the Lord, you can know that just as surely as you taste and touch and smell bread and wine, so surely you can know that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. It's amazing. We have this sign, this sign proving to us that Jesus has the authority to forgive all sin. If you look in your Bibles at verse 26, you'll see that the people were amazed, astonished at what they were seeing with their eyes. And one of the reasons I think they were, were astonished, which I was pointed to by another pastor, which I think is very insightful, is that Jesus is here for the first time declaring the forgiveness of sins away from the temple. Now, for the Old Testament saints, the forgiveness of sins was always declared, foreshadowed, at the temple with the sacrifices. But here, Jesus is declaring the forgiveness of sins away from the temple. This would have added to the, the outrageous claim that Jesus is making. But it points us, it teaches us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, the sacrifices. All those strange things you read about in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment, as he is the ultimate sacrifice, the lasting and true sacrifice, which can fully and finally take away the sin of every single human person. Well, beloved in the Lord, as I mentioned, this passage well, as Jesus himself mentions, this passage was written so that we may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. 
This absolution that we have considered from the mouth of Jesus is where your identity is to be found. This absolution is where your defense against that personified sin and guilt that seeks to testify against you is found. And lastly, it's this absolution that's declared and given to us each time we celebrate together the Lord's, the Lord's Supper.